Amen. Thank you, guys. You know, we, uh, we actually made that video back in, uh, in 2021. We started kind of a little project here at our church. And we had a lot of things that we felt like we needed to do if we were going to move forward as a church. I was trying to figure out a way to get out of here. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I was looking for another building. or how, Because we had a lot of issues, a lot of things that needed to be done. And to be honest with you, I don't know where you're at, but when we talk about hope, hope is the primary building block of faith. If you don't have hope where you actually have a joyful expectation that, hey, God is going to do some good things in the future, it's impossible to actually believe for God to do anything good in the future. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but, but sometimes I wrestle with that. Sometimes I look at certain dimensions in my life, maybe even in our community, and I feel somewhat hopeless, and I think that there is literally a spirit behind what's going on sometimes in our community, especially in places here in southeastern Kentucky, where we look at what's going on, and it seems like things aren't going to change, things won't get better, and sometimes we get overwhelmed with hopelessness. But what I have found is that God has placed us here for a very specific reason, and He's finally convinced me of that. Amen? I don't know if you're convinced, but I believe that God wants to do something in this region. I believe that He's placed a good Christian people here who follow him and listen to his voice for a very specific purpose and no matter how many times I've tried to run from it God says if you'll just believe me if you will hold on to hope if you will believe and have faith I can do something in your midst there was a, a time in, in 2019 I've told you this before in 2019 I was about to uh, I knew that it, we were coming into a transition where I was going to take over as pastor here and I felt like I, I felt overwhelmed at the challenge because of certain things that I saw and, and our building and our debt and certain things that I looked at, it just seemed insurmountable to me. And, and if I'm being totally honest with you, I didn't engage that season in my life with great faith. I felt burdened, I felt overwhelmed, and I felt a great sense of hopelessness. But I continued to pray and seek God and say, God, I surrender to whatever you want to do in this place. And over and over again, what God began to do was he sent me little seeds of hope that stirred faith in my heart to catch a new vision for what he wanted to do. I told you the story about how I, I was sitting there talking to, to Donald and a couple of other people and I was dumping the load of, hey, here's the debt that we've got. Here's the things that I feel like we need to do. You're talking about, I got to fix a roof. It's going to cost $100,000, like a million things I was laying out in front of him. I said, this is impossible. I mean, people, we're, we're one of the top 10 poorest counties in the nation. These are things that we can't do moving forward. These were things that were I was wrestling with in my heart and I literally said out of my mouth to God, I said, God, how are you going to be able to do something like that here? That I'm dreaming for. And I went and I was trying to undo some stress. And I went, I went up to the gym and I started working out. And I had this guy's name for whatever reason. Turns out that, that some people in our church had known about him, but I didn't know about him. I got a hold of this guy's name, Alistair Petrie, which is a strange name to begin with. And so I don't know who he is or where he's from. So I, I look him up on podcasts and I find a sermon and I just click it because I want to hear what he's saying. And within the first five minutes of him speaking, he's in Melbourne, Australia, preaching to a church. And he says, you know, God's doing great things all over the world. He's in Melbourne, Australia. He said, God's doing great things all over the world. I want to share with you a few places where I believe God's really moving. And the first place that he said, he said, God's really moving right now in Manchester, Kentucky. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you feel like that's a sign. <laughs> I don't know if you feel like that's a sign or whatever, but for me, it was like, okay, all right, God's moving in a place where I'm currently sitting and it doesn't feel like God's moving. Amen. 
But, but, but God started to send people to me from the outside, and God started to send people into our church. And when, in 2020, we actually grew. We've grown 200% as a church since 2020. 2021 was that we saw more baptisms any year uh, that we've ever seen in church history. And so my point being is that when you talk about a building, you know, that building over there, we've had people come to us as we've kind of renovated that along the process. And I know here's the thing. We don't want to get caught up in money and buildings because we believe just, we believe as we should that the church is not a building. However, let me say this. The building does actually facilitate the ministry that we do. Amen. I'm going to tell you something. If, if we didn't have a building, y'all probably wouldn't come to my church and be like, hey guys, show up to our church. We're underground. We're in homes spread out throughout the community. You probably wouldn't go. Amen. It's just the way that we are. So it facilitates what we're doing, and it became for us like a representation. As we saw changes in this building and God renewing it and restoring it, it became a representation for us. And people even came to us from outside and said, you know what, we used to go to school there, and to just see new life and just resurrection come out of that place just stirred our hearts so much. And for us, it has become a representation of what we believe God is doing in our community as a whole. God takes things that are broken down and worn out and hopeless and he resurrects them and brings new life. He brings beauty from ashes. And so we expect, and I believe that God is speaking to us, hey, I need you to believe for even greater things. I need you to understand that this is only the, only the beginning and you need to have hope for greater things in your life, greater things in your family, greater things in this church, and greater things in our community. And so I don't know about you, but I hope that that gives you some hope because it's so important that we understand that. I believe that the church is God's greatest beacon for hope in the world today. He's designed the church as much as it gets criticized and as much as the church falls short in different, in different areas. God has made the church to be his light in the world and to spread hope and everlasting life through the world. That's his design. We are the people of God in this community called to bring forth the gospel so that people can be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so I, I just want to share a little bit here given this. You know, we, we did not only Awaken Hope, which was more or less a campaign to kind of bring new life to this building. And we gave, you, we gave you four different phases that we wanted to lay out. And uh, we also did Project Hope, and we tied those two things together in the sense that we're, we're trying to restore and, 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 and build and renew in order to advance our church. But also, among, uh, along the lines, what we were doing was we were showing you here are the lives that are being changed as we're moving forward, because that's the most important thing. Uh, true riches are human beings. And so we use what riches God gives us, so to speak, to invest our time, our money, our resources into the ministry so that we can get true riches, which are the souls of human beings. And so when we talked about uh, the Awaken Hope Project uh, back in 2021, if you remember, some of y'all, you may be new, but we talked about we were going to do a new entrance, which we've done. We're going to put a roof on that building to try to slow down the thousand leaks that we had to mop up every, every morning, amen, every time it rained. And we got that taken care of. And then we were going to paint the exterior of both buildings. I don't know if you remember it, but th that used to be an ugly brick building, and this used to be like blue, a blue building, and it was ugly too, amen. I just got to be honest, like... Everything I walked around into was ugly, and I was like, this don't feel like the Lord. <laughs> I, 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 I just I walk into the building, this is where I seek you, Lord, and it just don't feel like the Lord. 
so, so uh, I, you know, we felt moved to start to address that, and we, we put up some signs. We got a new roof. Uh, we, we put some new doors in. We uh, did the updated the office, the conference rooms, the kids' church, all kinds of things. We got a little bit of, uh, of a parking lot done because uh, blacktop's a little bit expensive. But in, in phase two, that's what we were talking about doing. And honestly, phase two and phase three, we've kind of done uh, ha half of one. We were going to blacktop everything in phase three. And we said even in 2021, before we tried two services, that eventually we were going to go over and renovate the gymnasium and the cafeteria because we needed room to expand. Because if you look around, obviously, we could use a little bit of space just to expand. And so that was, that was our goal back then as actually phase two. So that is the move that we're currently praying about and almost positive that we're about to embark on is renovating that gymnasium and that cafeteria in order to have service over there. We've prayed about it. We've had some confirmation in our spirits, but we like to be cautious as we move forward. And so that's, that's, that's the next thing that we want to do. We've got a few other things to do. And then I want to say this, phase four, I just want to let you know where we're at financially as a church, and then I'm going to get into the word, okay? But phase four is, is, is something that you may or may not know. So when, we, when they bought, I wasn't here when they bought this land and this building and started to build this I was here whenever this thing started to come up is when I came about eight years ago or nine I can't remember and um, and we had a little bit of debt from the purchase of that right now we currently owe five hundred and forty four thousand dollars on the land and the buildings that we have the good news is is that we had been raising money in such a way that anything that we've bought to this point on renovations or whatever I said we're not going into any more debt so if we don't have the cash we're just not going to pay for it because uh, I'm not interested in that. But, but I want to set a phase four goal of paying this building off by 2027 of the summer. And how we're going to get there, I don't know. The Lord, the Lord will take care of it. But I want to set that goal of we're going to pay this thing off by 2027 in the summer because that is when uh, our, our, our interest rates are going to change. And I think that it's a good goal to set because we spend $40,000 a year just on the mortgage of, of this building. And what happens if you free that up in order to move towards some other things and you get all your innovations done so that you don't have to put any more money into that? What can we do then for our community? Amen. So even as we receive, I'm going to receive, I want to invite people. We never pressure people for money. We just, we throw it out there as an invitation because that's how we like to do it. I don't believe that, that, that you should give if you can't give out of a cheerful heart anyway. If you feel obligated, then, you know, keep it in your pocket. Amen. So, so it's something that the Lord should stir your heart into. And if not, then you have no obligation uh, to give at all. But we want to receive another offering and invite people into that offering. And I want to say this, that two things that I want to do with this offering beyond just going to what we're going to do for renovations and moving forward is I want to give a, a portion of that this year to Chad's Hope and to Heart and Soul Life Center because I believe that those are two ministries in our community. They, honestly, they, they both need support and they both need help. Chad's Hope is a wonderful ministry. We've been involved in it. We've partnered with it for years. We've got guys in our church that went through Chad's Hope and I'm telling you, they were hoodlums before they went and now they're great men of God. Amen. So that's a good, that's a good ministry. And here's the thing, the thing that I love about Chad's Hope is that, is that they don't, you can't smoke a cigarette in that place, my man. You can't take a dip, nothing. They'll barely give you a Tylenol up in that place. And most of the other uh, programs in our, in our region, they push Suboxone and other things like this. And, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to negate that or, or, or say anything negatively, but they can't receive insurance money to have a big booming program because they're completely relying upon donations. 
And, you know, and, but they're not going to capitulate to what society says they should do. They think it should be a Jesus-only campus, and I'm for it. Amen. And so I think we should support that ministry. Heart and Soul Life Ministry is a, is a ministry that ministers to young women in our community who are having children and struggling to provide for their babies that they just had. Great ministry, but it is also struggling a little bit, and people need to be aware of this. We're going to try to make a video for them to get other people involved, but a portion of whatever you give on December 3rd, we're going to send to Chad's Hope and Heart and Soul Life Ministry. Uh, amen. Everybody good with that? Give the Lord a hand clap. All right. Praise God. So that being said, if you're here this morning, I don't, we don't teach on giving a lot, but we try to do it once a year because here's the thing. I think sometimes people have a negative view of especially pastors that preach on giving or churches, and you hear all the time, well, all they do is want money. Well, here's the thing. I think you know our heart by now that all we do is not want money. What we want is your heart. Amen. But here's the thing is that when you look at Scripture, you would be, if you're a church or you're a pastor, you're not doing your people any good by not discipling them into becoming a generous giving person if you look at the bible actually matter of fact it's in scripture there are roughly 2350 verses concerning money in the bible that's almost twice as many verses about faith and prayer combined isn't that interesting 15 percent of everything that jesus spoke about related to money and possessions uh Every, fi, nearly 15% of everything that Jesus spoke about was related to money and possessions. And then 16 out of his 38 parables dealt with the topic of money. And the only subject that Jesus taught more about than money was the kingdom of God. And I believe that the reason that he did this and that you see this in Scripture is because it is, it, it's honestly money is the thing that competes most with God in our life. And he knows that our attitudes towards our possessions and toward our finances is what is competing with it. And this is why even when the rich young ruler came to him and said, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, well, keep the commandments. He said, man, I kept all them. He said, well, go and sell everything you have and come and follow me. He was getting to the root of the, of, of the God that was in his heart, which was his money and his wealth and his possessions. Money and wealth can be a very good and positive thing if it is used properly and it does not become the idol of our heart. And so Jesus addresses that over and over again. So money's difficult to talk about, but here's the thing. Jesus is to be Lord over all of our life, and nothing tests the reality of whether or not Jesus is the Lord of our lives like our money and like the stuff that we own. Amen. Somebody say amen to that. Right? You feel that. So there's two extremes in the church. A lot of you, you may have heard about the prosperity gospel. In the prosperity gospel, we don't believe in that. We don't believe that we just give money expecting God to give us millions of dollars in return or maybe somehow we'll get to a place where we can have a private jet. Because can I tell you, that don't work everywhere in the world. That may work in Franklin, Tennessee or New York City or somewhere else, but that don't work in Clay County, Kentucky. You know what I mean? You can't give a seed of $1,000 and expect a million dollars in a nice new Corvette. Amen? That's not how this stuff works. We give not because we are greedy and we want more. We give because we've been given so much in Christ Jesus that it flows out of our heart and we desire to see the kingdom advance. So while we don't believe in the prosperity gospel, even though we do believe God blesses his people, and that's the challenge. I've seen God bless me in extravagant ways and give me in return. And my wife and I even say when we're challenged to a place where we feel like we need to give a little bit more than we'd like to because we're kind of Dave Ramsey people and we got a tight budget and we ain't got a whole bunch of money, you know, anybody amen me in here? Like you're trying to keep it tight. You get a little bit stingy sometimes because you're trying to fit into the budget. And every now and then we have to give beyond our budget and we say to one another, well, you can't outgive God. 
And what we mean by that is ultimately we've seen that when we go above and beyond in any circumstance, God always provides more for us in some way and we've never been without. So I've never given to a place of depletion where it's like, oh my gosh, I can't really do that without God showing up and blessing me in some other way. So as much as we don't believe in the prosperity gospel, we also don't believe poverty is a spiritual thing. So you're not spiritual because you believe God to provide for you an amassed wealth but you're also, you know, some prosperity gospel teaches that basically how much money you got in your bank account reveals how much faith you have in your heart. And that's the farthest thing from the truth. But on the other hand, poverty is something that Jesus actually died to destroy. Amen. The word evil in the Greek language is poneros, and it deals with three specific things, sin, sickness, and poverty. And Jesus prayed that we would be delivered from all three. That we would be delivered from poverty, that we would be delivered from sickness and death, and that ultimately we would be delivered from sin as well. And so, biblical prosperity begins in the inner life when somebody has a recognition of how much God has given me in Jesus Christ. And because He becomes the Lord of my life, and He is the object of my affection, then I, then I understand that money is something that can be used in this world, and Jesus taught the same thing, that it's to be stewarded. And the Bible teaches the same thing, that it's to be stewarded and appreciated for what it is, but it's never to take the place of God. And because God has been so generous to me, I therefore in turn can be so generous to the people around me in order to bless them. And I hold that thing loosely because I'm using it not just for me and my own selfish desires, but for the purposes of God in the world. Amen. So let's talk about this. Because in Luke 16, let's go to Luke 16. And here's the issue. There's this word that Jesus uses called mammon, which is an interesting word, and it's in the Bible four specific times. But in Luke 16, verse 9 through 13, Jesus said, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon. Now, a lot of translations will translate that just wealth, and it sounds like he's saying, hey, buy you a bunch of friends with the money. Now, money can buy friends. Y'all amen me. Like, somebody be like, I'm going to go hang out with that dude. He's got some chad. <laughs> he says, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon or wealth, that when it fails, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. This is the only phrase in the Bible that Jesus uses that contrasts serving God clearly with something else. He doesn't say you can't serve God and your children. He doesn't say you can't serve God and your job. He lists specifically you cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve whatever this is. So, so what is mammon? It's, a, it's actually an Aramaic word that means wealth. But get this, it was, it was linked to a Babylonian deity. So in other words, what mammon is, is a demonic principality that shifts and influences the hearts and minds of people to turn away from the true God to serve the God of money, to serve the God of wealth. And can I say this? I think that it's so interesting in America that on our dollar bills it says, in God we trust. And I'm wondering what God in particular that is. 
I'm wondering if it's not the God of mammon that we actually trust. We trust that our money can give us health, our money can give us security, our money can give us a good future for our children, and we got to get more of it at all costs and amass so much wealth so that somehow we can be secure and have an identity and be accepted and be loved and be favored in our world. Can somebody amen me? You have been up under the spirit of mammon at some point in your life or another. I myself have been under this, the influence of this spirit. When we look at the world around us, man, this spirit makes you believe that money is the answer to all things. That money's going to... Now, here's the thing, again. When, when God gives us money and we, we, we find... God even gives people, I believe, business ideas and, and decisions because money in and of itself is not a bad thing, but it's when that spirit of mammon gets you to view money in a different way that it becomes a very bad thing. And so here's the issue of it. This is where it began, is in Babylon. And the spirit of mammon is similar, right? I mean, it makes money God. Mammon is looking for servants. He says you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is looking for people to serve it. And it wants you to think about the economy in earthly terms. It wants you to think. Now, even in, 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 this is one of the things when we talk about awakening hope, especially in a place like southeastern Kentucky, most of the people in, 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 in Kentucky, southeastern Kentucky, their hope is in the government to provide them money. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Not God to provide them money. The government, in that sense, has become God in some, in some ways. But he says, when you serve God or mammon, he says what's going to happen is you're going to be loyal to the one but you're going to despise the other. You'll be loyal to the one and you'll despise the other when they're in competition with each other. Now here's something that's very interesting that I found, and this is one of the reasons I don't like the prosperity gospel, is because they preach that you should give, and if you give, God's going to give you an abundance back. Now I believe that there is a principle in Scripture for that reality, but it can be twisted, and so here's what happens. When people tithe or they give, and then all of a sudden something breaks down, or maybe they've not been uh, supplied with what they want, or, or they're jealous of what other people have, and they say, well, man, I ain't getting enough money out of this. Why should I keep giving if, if I'm not getting back what I want to see? And so what you end up doing is because something doesn't come through and meet your expectations and you don't have the amount that you wish you had then you get mad at God and you despise him because he's not providing for you in a way that you wish he would amen now sometimes I'll be honest with you sometimes I'd like to have more can anybody amen me this morning I ain't, I ain't standing up here and thinking that I, telling you that I, there's not times that I wouldn't like to have a bigger house or a nicer vehicle. I mean, I like my Hyundai Sonata that's got 120,000 miles on it, but I'd rather have a big rig truck. You know what I'm saying? I'd rather drive around in style. Like I get those things pull at our hearts, but at the end of the day, God gives us what we need, and we must learn contentment because godliness with contentment is great gain. So he's teaching us different things as we work through these different issues in our lives. But he says there's a, there's a possibility that we could get to the place where we actually begin to despise God because we're actually loyal to mammon. And if you're loyal to mammon, you could actually begin to despise God's ways. And some people despise it when anybody talks about money or giving. Why? Because they are loyal to mammon and they don't want you to touch their money or tell them what to do with it. Amen. So they despise it. See, mammon actually promises everything that only God can give us. Only God can give you identity. Only God can give you security. Your provider, contrary to popular belief in America, your provider is God. He is Jehovah Jireh. 
If he gives us increase, thank God. Matter of fact, in Deuteronomy, it says he's the one that gives you power to get wealth. If you get wealth, then praise God for it because he is the one who has given you the power to do that. And and, and in 1 Timothy, when he talks about money, he says, even to the rich in this life, he said, don't tell them not to put their trust in uncertain riches, but tell them to put their trust in God. They may be rich right now, but you may not be rich down the road. And there may come a time, there will come a time, when that money fails and it no longer has has the power it is uncertain riches and it cannot give you all of the things that you need in this life so put your trust in God who gives us richly all things to enjoy so I thank God whenever he blesses people and they have a good business and they see money and they have generational wealth thank God for those things but it's not to become God in our lives you know mammon and the spirit of antichrist work together it's interesting to me that when, we, when you talk about the spirit of antichrist Notice specifically what it hits at. It it causes you to take some sort of allegiance that initiates fear into your heart out of the fact that you may not be able to what? Buy or sell. It's at the root of money. Why? Because it knows, the spirit of Antichrist knows that if you want to hit at your God, threaten your ability to get goods. Threaten your ability to buy and sell. And if we can threaten that and no longer trust God as our provider, but trust some other spirit or some other government or some other power as our provider, then we will bow down in an instant and say, all right, I'll take whatever you give me. I surrender because I need to buy and sell. Amen. And so there's this this pull where mammon comes in and begins to draw us away. But can I tell you this? Money ultimately is not what helps people. God helps people, and sometimes he uses money to do it. Amen. That was better than y'all shouted, but... I felt real good about it when it came out. So let me ask this question. Some people, is money actually evil? Like when we talk about this, is money evil? People say, people say all the time, especially in southeastern Kentucky, people take Bible verses way out of context, and then they shave some off, and then they quote it all the time. Well, that's what the Bible says. I'm like, give me, give me chapter and verse. I don't think I've heard that one. Uh, you know, but, but what people will say a lot is money is the root of all evil. That's not what the scripture actually says, is it? In 1 Timothy 6.10, it says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not the root of all evil. It produces all types of different evil that manifest because at the root of it, you love money more than you love God. And he says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Can I tell you this, that there's been times in my life where I feel like the devil clothing himself in white and looking all pretty has offered me alternate ways in my life because, and he appealed to me because it looked like God's provision and he said, you're going to get more money if you go this route. But for me, it was personally moving away from the call of God on my life. And so people can actually stray from the faith in their greediness and pierce themselves through with many sorrows because they actually choose wealth over God. Now again, that doesn't mean people can choose God and amass wealth. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying but sometimes there is a delineation on what you're actually choosing. In Luke 16, 9 it says, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when it fails they may receive you into an everlasting home. Now like I said... It looks at first glance like he's saying, use money to make friends. But I think, I think really what he's saying is, take the unrighteous mammon that you have and sanctify that by stewarding it for God's purposes. 
Now, I personally believe, I know there's a lot of argument as to the tithe and whether or not it's biblical, and we'll get into that in a minute. But the way that Andre and I look, like, look at it from a financial perspective when we do our budget is we just assume right out of the gate that 10% of the tithe is God's. That's how we, that's how we function. And we believe that when God gives us our 100%, right, uh, we, you give to Caesar what's Caesar's, obviously, but he just takes it and you don't even know about it. So, it's, <laughs> so, so that, that's there. You know, but out of, out of that, out of that, 10%, 10% of that is God's, and it's already His. We don't even think about it. And then the other aspect, the offering, then, then we consider prayerfully what that's, what's going on. But we believe that we sanctify our 90% and give it unto God. And we're basically saying, God, all of this comes from you. We're taking 10% of it. 10% of it is yours right off the top no matter what. And then now we know that we're under your economy and you can use the 90% to bless us and maybe even bless somebody else. But now it's sanctified and up under God's economy rather than the world's economy. And that's how we look at it. That's how we view it. So my question is, what could we do if everyone gave what God called them to give? God is the only one who can take unrighteous mammon and turn it into souls. And what I think he's saying in this scripture is he's saying essentially this. You get money in your life, and and it's a parable, so he's speaking parabolically. But he says you take that unrighteous mammon, you give 10% to God, you sanctify it, and then you use it to bring friends into the kingdom of God so that one day when you die, and money no longer works because it don't work in heaven in the afterlife you can't take a hundred dollar bill and use it in the afterlife whether you go to heaven or hell amen you ain't gonna be able to give no, nobody a hundred dollars say oh let me let me stay out of here all right you know what i'm saying like you ain't gonna be able to use it he says when it fails those people that you used money and resources to advance the kingdom of god and they got saved because of your generosity they will welcome you into an everlasting home that was still better than y'all shouted too i mean He's saying use unrighteous mammon to advance the kingdom of God, to reach lost souls, because those are true riches. And when you see lost souls reach for the kingdom of God, it's just the, fa- the fact that we spent a little bit of our money to buy that one man a motorcycle and to put him through missionary training, who the last report we heard, he went into an unreached people group, praise God, and has reached at this point 600 people that have come to Christ that otherwise would not have heard the name. You understand that? Imagine that when you get to heaven, because you gave, those people are going to hug you and receive you into an everlasting home and say thank you because you gave out of generosity. You touched my life over in the middle of nowhere in South Sudan, and I'm receiving you into an everlasting home. That's what he's saying. You used money in order to advance the kingdom to make friends, and now when money fails and it doesn't work no more, they're going to receive you into an everlasting home. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. That's what he's saying. So what should I do with my money? One, you've got to be a good steward of what you have. You know, uh, a lot of people are terrible stewards of their money. Amen. I mean, you can laugh at it. It's true. Uh, and they need help to make a budget and figure that out. You know, a lot of times we love to help people and bless people in the community. We pay for light bills and, and stuff like that. But when it becomes recurring, you know what we like to say? Hey, come on in. We'll look at what you're bringing in, look at your budget, we'll try to help you. And they don't like that. Amen. And here's the thing, if anybody needs help, my wife right here is a financial advisor, my friends. She has some management technique and understanding. She can help you make sense of your budget and how to spend money and how to not spend money. 
Uh, there's, there's people around that have these giftings and abilities within the church, and sometimes that's what people need. They need a little boost in the right direction of how to steward finances appropriately. But it may mean that you have to learn to live beyond, within your means. I told somebody yesterday, I was wearing a black pair of jeans. I was on day 28 in them jeans. That's saving water. She's like, that's gross. Somebody said, man, our pastor is nasty. I gave them the smell check, y'all. They wasn't that bad. But you learn to live within your means. And, and, and I, I like nice things as much as the next person, but you learn to live within your means, so you steward your money pr- appropriately. But Luke 16, 10 through 12, he says, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. And then he compares being much being something deeply spiritual, the least being something material like finances. And then he says, therefore, if you've not been faithful in unrighteous mammon or money or wealth, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? He gives us a little and he sees how well we can steward it. And then I believe he gives us more based on that. So, Let's talk again about something else. What is the tithe? Some people might ask that, what is the tithe? Uh, in the Hebrew language, it literally, literally just means tenth. It means a tenth part. So that it was called the first fruits in the Old Testament. Now, the, in the Old Testament, I understand, I get, that the, the Hebrews, they would pay something like 19 or 23% in tithes because they had a, a bunch of multiplicity of tithes. And some people say, well, tithing is not for the new covenant and this and that. And to some degree, I agree. I want to open this up, though, to make sense of the principle of it. Uh, but but here's, the, here's what's so interesting to me is, is people that say, hey, the tithe is not for the new covenant. Do you know what they actually did in the new covenant? Whenever the apostles started preaching the gospel, everybody went and sold their home and their possessions and laid all the money at the apostles' feet. So if you prefer to go that route other than the tithe, be my guest. And it was, here we're saying, it was such a serious issue. I don't know if you've ever read this. My seeker-sensitive uh, friends will not like me saying this. But in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira did what everybody else was doing. They sold all their land and their possessions, and they went and brought it to the apostles' feet, all the money, but they kept half of it back for themselves. But they acted as if they were like everybody else and extremely generous. Laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter looks up at them and says, How has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? spirit and they dropped dead on the floor god was trying to keep his church pure and the motives pure at that point it wasn't that god asked them to sell all their possessions it was that they tried to lie about it ain't nobody here trying to ask you to sell all your possessions in your land and stuff it's it, it needs to come out of a pure heart you do it because god moves in your heart by the spirit to respond I'd never place a heavy hand over somebody to tithe or anything like that. It needs to be a revelation to you from the Scripture because you want to do the will of God. Amen. Amen. So, he says, it's a tenth part, and he says in verse 12, If you've not been faithful with another man's, who will give you what is your own? In other words, like I said, I believe one application of this is that the 10% is the Lord's. It's another man's. It's not mine. The 10% of everything that comes into me is another man's, but who will give me what is my own? So 10 is actually a test throughout Scripture. And here's the thing. God tested Pharaoh's heart with 10 plagues. 10 commandments God gave to see whether they would obey him or not. God tested Israel 10 times in the wilderness. 
Jacob's wages were changed ten times by Laban to test his heart. Daniel was tested ten days eating vegetables. There were ten virgins that were tested in Matthew with oil. And then there were ten days of testing mentioned in Revelation. So in verse 11 he says, Therefore if you've not been faithful and unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? Here's the thing. True riches are people and he's saying, I need to test you in this to understand how you're going to use your finances, whether you're going to use them only selfishly or you're going to understand how to steward them to advance the kingdom. So, true riches are people. People are the only thing that's going to last eternally. You cannot, it says that you brought nothing into this world, you can take nothing out. He says, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. The greatest treasures you can store up in heaven are actually the people that you lead there with you. Period. That's the greatest treasure. Somebody said, well, I'm going to have a mansion in heaven. Can I tell you that the people you see there, my friend, are the mansions. They are the greatest asset to the kingdom. This is what we're after. And so even when we do something like we say we're, we're going to receive an offering, try to make our building nicer, we only do that because we, we believe it will help facilitate the growth that God wants to give, that people will come in, hear the gospel, be saved, know Jesus, be discipled, and we can raise a group of kids in a godly generation. That's one of the things about this. It's like right now our, our youth group is, is not, not huge or anything, but it's a wonderful youth group. But I envision a day when this building right here is filled with teenagers. I envision, I envision that, that this will be a, become a sanctuary for our youth where it's filled with teenagers. And you have to begin to believe those things. So, again, we're not owners of the earth. We are stewards of the earth. And stewards must give an account to the Creator. Now, some say, again, tithe is not in the, in the New Covenant. But let me, let me go back to the first mention of the tithe, which is in Genesis 14, 8 through, 18 through 20. Now, Genesis 14, it says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now Abraham at this particular time was not under the law. He wasn't under the old covenant. He was under the Abrahamic covenant. I don't know if you all understand this, but in Galatians it says that we are children of Abraham, right? That you ever, Naomi sings it all the time. Father Abraham, how many sons? That's you. And the reason you are his sons and daughters is because you believed in, in God like he believed in God. God shared the gospel to him in, in various ways and in various messages. And after he won this battle, Melchizedek come out to meet him after he won a battle. And Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate picture of Christ. It's Christ showing up to meet him before he became pre... It was pre-incarnate. So Melchizedek walks up, gives him bread and wine, which is a prefigure of Christ giving his body and his blood for us on the cross. And Melchizedek, or, or, or Abraham responds by giving him a tithe of all. So in essence, he's saying the same way that Jesus gives us his body and gives us his blood and salvation, we respond and enter that covenant by saying, God, everything that you give me, I want to respond back to you by acknowledging that you are the Lord of my life by giving you 10% of everything that I have. And he gave him a tithe of all. And so you see that picture even in the covenant. And his son learned this. And so Isaac and Jacob both were tithers in a sense. And in Hebrews 7, 8, I want you to understand, speaking of Melchizedek, he says, which is a better priesthood than the Levites, because Melchizedek, Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek. I don't have a lot of time to get into that. I know that may be whatever. But 
he says in verse 8, Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. In other words, what he's saying is, you may give your tithe in the box, or you may give it online, and men receive it. We've got some dudes on our team that actually come back, and they're trustworthy, and they hold one another accountable, and they take what you give, and they put it in, and we, we, you know, we look at what's coming in and what's going out. Mortal men receive it, but when you choose to give the tithe, God says, in heaven, Jesus receives it. And it testifies and witnesses that he lives, which means he acknowledges what you are doing and there's a certain covering that he places over your life to testify in your life that I am at work in your life. You say, well, I just don't know if I believe that or not. Well, in Genesis 28, Jacob is running and he doesn't know what to do. He knows he's called by God, but he's out in the middle of nowhere. He's afraid that his brother's going to kill him. And he falls asleep, he has a dream, and he wakes up and he has a stone that he's been sleeping on. He makes a vow to the Lord and he basically says, Lord, I'm trusting you to take care of me. I'm tired of running. I'm tired of living in my own flesh and in my own ways. I'm trusting you to take care of me, to keep me, to give me food and clothing and a home and so I can live in peace. And he, he takes uh, that pillar, that stone, and he says, And this stone which I've set as a pillar shall be God's house, in verse 22. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So once again, he, he says, God, I, I want you to take care of me, and I'm going to let you know, just so, I know, just so you know that, I'm, that you're Lord in my life, I'm going to give a tenth of everything that you bring to me as I move forward. Well, guess what? He goes, and he's working for his father-in-law, Laban, and Laban tricks the fire out of this man, like most father-in-laws. I'm kidding. They don't know that. My father-in-law don't do that stuff. And he, he tricked him, and ten times... He changed his wages. And get this, at the end of the tenth time that he changed his wages, Laban had hoodooed him ten times. And you know what God did? God actually changed. He said, well, all right, you, you keep this flock and you keep that flock and whichever ones are speckled, yada, yada, you can keep them. Well, God changed the colors of all the livestock and, and Jacob inherited almost all of his livestock completely because God changed the colors. And God responded to him and said, you know what, the reason I did this is because I remembered the day that you said to me, I'm the God of Bethel. I'm the day, the day you poured that on and said, I'll give you a tenth of all, I marked it. And now I've turned things around in your life even though it seemed like you were being hoodooed the whole time. And God's saying, if you will trust me in this, I will take care of you. That's why it says in Malachi 3, verse 8 through 11, it says, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me, but you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. Amen. Now, that can be a little bit scary for some people because here's, the thing, here's what I want you to understand about the curse in the Old Covenant. is that in Christ, we are no longer under the curse of the law. Amen. So if you've not been tithing appropriately, I'm not telling you this morning that you're under a curse because that would require you to do something in order for the curse to be broken. And what I'm saying is that if you believe in Christ, the curse has been broken over your life. But if you believe in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in you and now you want to be obedient to His commands. But I also believe that there is a principle that, that remains that when God says, test me, this is available to us. 
And so he says in verse 10, test me and see if I will not open the heavens. So he's saying, test me, tithe, and see if I won't unleash my rule over your life. It's not just more money. It is the kingdom of God being unleashed on your children, your family, your home, your finances, every area of your life. He says, test me. See if I will not open the heavens and pour out on you such a blessing that there's not room enough to contain it. And what that means is, is that when you have a body of believers or a people that are willing to test God in this with their finances, he says that I'm going to set you up where you'll actually have to expand for increase. There won't be room enough for you to contain it, and therefore you'll have to expand for increase. Well, guess what? We built a building. There ain't room for us to contain it. We've got to expand for increase. And so the point is, he's saying, you will advance in my ways and in my kingdom. You're not, if you live according to God's principles, you're not going to see depletion and scarcity. One of the fears that we have is a fear of lack or somehow in the future. I don't know about you. Sometimes i got a fear. Eventually, this is going to crumble. Eventually, I'm going to be broke. Eventually, this ain't going to work. God's saying you have got to reject that mindset and trust me in these areas in your life and I will take care of you and be your provider. Amen. And so he says, test me and I will rebuke the devourer. See, the devourer, some people would argue, has legal access to your money when you're stewarding it for your own selfish purposes. But when you sanctify it and come up under God's economy and say, Lord, this is your money. How do you want me to use it? He says, I'll rebuke the devourer and it will not touch your money. There's all kind of rich people who use their money in ungodly ways. And all of a sudden they see the devourer touching that money. But then there's all kind of poor people that use their money for God. And they see him blessing it and open the windows of heaven and taking care of them. And sometimes what God gives you is peace and contentment and the ability to not get caught up and deceived by the materialism of this world. So you got to keep up with the Joneses. What if giving actually just delivers you from a spirit of materialism and greed? Man, that's good preaching right there. See, the wrong way to look at it is that somehow if I give more money, I'm going to have more stuff. No, no, no. You give more money, God might just deliver you from materialism and greed so that you have a pure heart to worship Him more fully. Ooh, man, that was good. Somebody make a clip on that. Golly, there ain't many people preaching that. Amen. You don't get as much money from people whenever you tell them that it's more about their heart than what they're going to get in return. But I'm not interested in your money. I'm interested in your heart. I got, look, God is, I trust God to supply what we need. And if he don't supply it, I won't build it. Amen. I'm not going to go beyond the Lord in this thing. So, so, so what we're after is hearts. So secondly, what is the offering? The tithe is an issue of obedience the offering is an issue of cultivating kingdom, advancing generosity. So a lot of times when we, re, again, what we said, the tithe is its own thing. It's God's before I even make a decision, but then I get to choose based on the 90% I've got left how I will use the offering unto the Lord. The offering is separate from the tithe. And so it's not like, well, I'll take that out of my tithe, you know, when I give to this, and so I won't tithe as much this time. No, the tithe is the tithe. The offering is something separate. And you're like, well, golly, Clay, you tell us to give me more. This is awful. And my argument would be this. I, I would just say this, and this is where Andrea and I are at a lot of time. Like I said, the tithe is the tithe that we never... If you've not tithed, pray about and consider doing that. Uh, move, move into that level. If you are a regular tither, pray about and consider, how can I push my faith into a level where I let God know, hey, God, I want to I sacrifice an offering to advance the kingdom. 
And, and, you, and you pray about that. So here's the thing. I, don't, I, I wouldn't ask you for money, but I will ask you to ask God what you should give in your life and who you should give it to and what you should give it to. So Paul receives, I'm going to close here in just a moment, but Paul receives an offering from the Corinthians, and here's what he says, and it's very interesting. In 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5, it says, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So let me show you the Macedonians as an example in generosity. Here's what he said. Number one, he said they gave joyfully in the midst of their severe trial and affliction. Now I think that a lot of times what we do is if we're in severe trial and affliction, we use that as an excuse to not be generous to people. Amen. We use it as an excuse to not give. But he says, no, with great joy, they recognized how much God had blessed them and they were so filled with joy that even though they were going through a great, severe trial and affliction, they were willing to give joyfully. Number two, they gave generously in the midst of extreme poverty. They looked at their ability to give, what they could give, and they looked at their future circumstances and they weighed what would be reasonable for us to give and they just threw all of that out and chose to go, go above and beyond in the middle of their extreme poverty. So here's the thing. Giving generously has nothing to do with quantity so much as it has to do with quality. Giving generously is not something only for wealthy people. You remember the widow's might? Jesus said that woman given out of her heart gave more than any of you rich men that come in here and gave a lot. Because it was an issue of her heart. And she was willing to give up the, the little that she had rather than giving from this massive abundance and thinking somehow that God accepted that more. No, God knows what's going on in the heart and God loves it. And they gave generously in the midst of extreme poverty. Number three, they gave as a privilege and not as a burden. I imagine that when Paul preached there, he got to the end and he noticed that they were in such extreme poverty that he thought, boys, I ain't even going to pass a bucket around. You know what I'm saying? We just need to get out of here. These people are too poor. It says they were in extreme poverty. And some dude in the back said, no, 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 Paul. Pass the bucket around. Do not take from us the privilege of generously giving into this ministry. And we're not, we're not just going to give. It is a privilege. It's not a burden. And not only that, when they gave, they gave in a way that exceeded their ex his expectations. He thought, man, these people are broke. They're poor. They're impoverished. They're in affliction. They're not going to give a dime. And he said, man, they gave so much that it was... It blew me away. And so he's saying, giving, everybody knows what they're expected to give. And sometimes I think in terms of, man, what can I get? And I think about that and I think, but what would ex exceed expectations here? You know what I'm saying? And so that's, that's the way that they gave. Lastly, let me close here in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7. He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, don't let anyone provoke or manipulate you. This is why I like to teach on giving and then give you two weeks to marinate on it. And I don't want to push the bucket around and say, everybody stand up and look at the other person around you that's giving and not giving. 
Because you could give out of manipulation or you could give out of compulsion. I want you to pray about what God actually wants you to give and then we'll do it in such a way where it's not something where you are, feel compelled or obligated, but you feel moved by the Spirit to do it because God loves a cheerful giver. But He says, understand this, if you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. If you sow generously, you reap generously. Because when you become generous, you're actually refle reflecting your Father in heaven who gave everything for you to have eternal life. So he's changing your life into becoming like God who is generous, so generous that he gave his own son. And then he says, when you are, are a cheerful giver, verse 8, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. He wants you to understand this principle of sowing and reaping that when you learn how to give generously, God is saying you will reap a reward and it will bring increase so that you in every circumstance of your life will have an abundance. Why? So that you can do more good works. I tell the Lord sometimes, Lord, I'd like to have a lot more money. And yeah, part of me would like to have a beach house. But Lord, I promise you, you know, if it, I'm telling you, only the Lord knows what he, like who can handle money and who can't. I probably can't handle that much. Maybe that's why I'm in the shape I'm in. <laughs> but the truth is, you know, God gives good things to His people. He likes His children to have good gifts. And nobody should ever feel ashamed of enjoying their lives and having, having good things. Nobody should ever feel that way. But at the same time, I think there is this principle that when we learn to give generously, God brings something back into our lives and gives us increase. Why? So that we can continue to grow in good works. So that it becomes an even greater measure. So that we expand. If we increase in finances, praise God, we get to maybe experience more blessing and some material things, but at the end of the day, we get to advance the kingdom even more, and that's the most important thing. Verse 10 and 11, it says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enri enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So all that God gives can be broken down into two categories, seed and bread, seed and bread. So in other words, if $1,000 comes in to, to me and Andrea, 100 of that is tithe. We give that straight to God. And then out of the 900, a lot of that's bread. A lot of that goes to Kroger. A lot of that 900 goes to Kroger and, 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 and lots of apples and nini nanas for, for Naomi. And then we eat that. And, and, and you know what? We spend some on clothing and we spend some on, on, on maybe a trip or something that we enjoy or, you know, something like that. It's, it's bread for us and, and a gift that God enjoys. But then we, prayer, we prayerfully acknowledge that, Lord, there may be a portion of this that is not just the bread, but it's the seed. And if I eat my seed... I won't have a harvest for the future. So he says the tithe is his, a hundred of that thousand is his. Out of the 900, a good portion of it is my bread and my life and my living, but a portion of that, God, is seed. What do you want me to sow and scatter so that I can reap a greater harvest in the future? Consider that. That's how we manage our money. So he says your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So God has given us the absolute best in Jesus Christ. Would you say amen to that? Amen. 
And so we think about generosity. You know, we got a lot of things coming up. And I know, here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to feel pressured in any shape, form, or fashion. I want you to be prayerful about this. There's a lot that we do in Christmas. And I know that people give, uh, obviously, gifts. And you're thinking about all the stuff you got to buy for your children and your family members and stuff like that. You know, uh, I, I would encourage simplicity in some of those things. But to just be prayerful about what God is actually... Have you ever considered, God, what are you actually asking me to do with my money in this Christmas season? To not come, He definitely ain't asking you to go in debt, y'all. Amen. Live within your means. There are gifts that you can give people that are far greater than you know, just financial blessings or whatever. But, but be prayerful about that. And, and, and come into a place over these next couple of weeks where you say, God, what, what are you wanting me to do? And what is the seed that I can sow that you want to bring a greater harvest in your kingdom in, in the days to come? Amen. I want you to bow your heads with me. And, and, and I want us to just take a moment, first and foremost, really, as we pray about this, to just consider how good God has been to us. And I know that, I know that when you hear a message on giving, you know, it doesn't necessarily uh, turn your heart toward the dimension of salvation but understand that a generous life and a generous heart when we give money we're giving something minuscule in comparison to the fact that God gave his son Jesus Christ for you so if you're here this morning and you have not given your life to Jesus the most generous gift that has ever been given is eternal life in faith in Christ Jesus and so you can turn your heart this morning and say Lord Jesus I confess you as Lord I repent of my sins and I turn to you and you can begin to walk if the Holy Spirit is drawing you in a relationship with Jesus And so I pray that over every person here this morning God that you would remind those that have been walking with you just how generous and good and loving and kind and merciful you have been to them in pouring out the riches of your blessings on their lives and Lord Jesus, for those who don't know you, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would convict them and you would draw them with great power to respond to you in faith. And that, Lord Jesus, they would begin to live their lives for you. We declare you as Lord over our lives, over our finances, over our children, and over our future. And I pray, God, that this morning you would truly awaken hope in our hearts. Lord God, in the lives of people who are addicted this morning, that hope would awaken. Lord God, in the lives of, of people who are just struggling with issues in their families, that hope would awaken in our relationships, God, that you would awaken that hope in our heart to believe you, God, to do great things in our lives. And in our church and in our community, God, we believe that we're, we're called to a season where we expand and we expand our borders, God, because you want to pour out a blessing that we don't have room enough to contain, God. So pour this hope into every heart and every life. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen.